as the time continued, right, then when you move to what I'm going to call the later period of Sahaba, one was the early period of Sahaba, post-Prophet, that is Khilafate, Abu Bakr and Umar, radiallahu ta'ala anhuma. Then you move to the later period of Sahaba, which is normally viewed as Khilafat of Usman, Khilafat of Ali, and then after, the rest of the, after the Khilafat of Ali ends until the rest of the Sahaba, any other, any Sahaba remain alive. Radiallahu anhuma wa anhum ajma'in. In that latter period, you had massive specialization. Why? Because you had a massive geographic dispersion of the Sahaba. Even during the Khilafat of Sayyidina Umar, by the time that Khilafat was done, Islam had traveled all across North Africa, Islam had penetrated into modern day Iraq, what they would call the Tigris and Euphrates valleys, Islam had even trickled down a little bit, we have record of some Sahaba going to sub-Saharan Africa, there are some historical records, could be disputed, but historical records of probability, maybe not certainty, but probable reports of Sahaba reaching as far as China, right, so you have Sahaba Ikram traveling, widely. And whenever they traveled, and particularly when they traveled as Mujahideen, and as all of you know, they were extremely successful, and all of those territories came under Darul Islam, then the second it becomes under Darul Islam, because we were not about territory. We're not about expansionism, we're not about empire, it was about deen. So the immediate task of the Sahaba and Tabin was to establish the deen in all those territories. And obviously then the people who were the bearers of the deen would have to travel. So you had Muhaddithin Sahaba, Fuqaha Sahaba, Qurra Sahaba, Hufaz Sahaba, Muzakki Sahaba, dispersing themselves all over and taking up that mantle of teaching different aspects of the deen to Tabin and to new converts. And that historical phenomenon of the geographic spread of the Muslim Ummah is what led to an increased specialization in that second period of Sahaba, or we're going to call the younger companions of the Prophet ﷺ, who lived longer, right? Who lived longer. And this specialization then continues and marks the Tabin and Tabai Tabin equally or even all the more in the Tabin and Tabai Tabin. So to give you an example from the Tabin, there's a very famous Tabi by the name of Abdullah ibn Mubarak, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. Another very famous Tabi known as Hassan al-Basri, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. These are the two most famous names uh, in the Tabin who were people who specialized in Tazkiyah. At this point, Tazkiyah took a new word that exists in the Quran and Hadith, but a new word came to define this particular discipline, this type of interaction between a student and teacher, this type of learning. And that was called Zuhud. Zuhud. And the Tabin and Tabai Tabin used this word Zuhud because as all of you know, the unfortunate reality of Muslim history is after the Khulafai Rashidin, things went very downhill. And we were plagued with a lot of rulers who were after more worldly rule and worldly wealth. And then they had an elaborate state structure around them. And they had a, a very large number of people who would patronize their court, right? And try to curry favor with the different rulers and viziers and governors. And notwithstanding that there were still many pious people in those ranks, but increasingly, rule and politics in the Muslim world began to degenerate. So to counter that, people like Abdullah bin Mubarak, let's start with him, Rahimullah Ta'ala, started using the word Zuhud. And what he did, he is known as the first person, to, uh, the person rather to write the first book 
on Tazkiyah, which is called Kitab al-Zuhr. Still available, printed today. I myself bought my copy in Saudi Arabia, Kitab al-Zuhr. In Kitab al-Zuhr, what he did is he gathered all of the hadith that he could find. Of the, he was a muhaddith. Abdullah bin Mubarak, muhaddith. And he gathered all of the hadith that he could find. Uh, Abdullah bin Mubarak is of the Tabai Tabin. Hassan al-Basri is in the Tabin. Abdullah bin Barak gathered all the hadith he could find of the Prophet on what he felt he would loosely describe as zuhr, which means renouncing love of the world, compassion for the poor, love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? All of the teachings that place Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the deen at the center, fikr akhirat whatever he could find. And he would add, then he added to that also, akwal and halat of sahaba. So he would mention, he mentions in the Kitab al-Zuhr stories of the Sahaba, statements of the Sahaba, and the same thing, ahwal and stayings of the Tabing. Now what happens is, is not only are we interested in the stylistic features of this book, but it also tells us a thinking process that was evolving. And what is that? In addition to the verses of the Quran, and in addition to the Hadith, we want to look at both the statements and the lives of the pious Muslims. So hence he is quoting the akwal and the halat, the, 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 state, the, the statements and the conditions of the sahaba and the statements and the conditions of the tabi. And this is going to continue to be a running theme in Islamic literature throughout the centuries, even up till today. Kitab al-Zuhr. And Hassan al-Basri, going one generation back to the tabi, he was a senior tabi, who in the time of the Khilafat of Sayyidina Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu, when he was Khalifa and Amir al-Mu'maneen, he sent Hassan radiallahu ta'ala to Basra. From Medina to Basra. Sent him to Basra and wrote a letter to the people of Basra that I am sending you Hassan and you will take your deen from him now. And it's written in the history books, the biographies of Hassan al-Basri. And these biographies are actually written by the muhaddisin, not by historians. I shouldn't say history books in the books of what we call Asma'i Rijal, by great scholars such as Ibn Hajar Asqalani, Imam al-Zahabi, the great Hadith scholars have written the biographies of these Tabin and Tabai Tabin because they're Hadith narrators. And it's written about Hassan al-Basra in his biographies that he used to have two majlis, literally two gatherings, you can say, in a day. Daytime in which he taught ilm and nighttime which was known as his majlis of tazkiyah in which he would sit and expound upon the verses of the Qur'an, the hadith of the Prophet stories of Sahaba pertaining to the love for Allah SWT, purifying ourselves of negative attributes, all of these things that can be loosely called tizkiyah, purification of the heart. And those tabin in Basra and tabai tabin in Basra who chose to attend his majlis, that was the way they did amal on kunuma sadiqin. He was their sadiq. He was the one who was truer than them to Allah Spant on the Prophet that they chose to sit and put themselves in his presence and in his company. And he's also written a book. Rather, one of his students compiled the du'as that he used to recite and they're called al-istighfarat. That he used to make lots of du'a of istighfar and tawbah to Allah SWT and his students, student means tabai tabin, compiled those du'as and then the students and followers and later generations would use those du'as. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about du'as not to be found in the Quran. We're talking about du'as not to be found in the Hadith. We're talking about 
the Tabin. And Hassan al-Basra was also a faqih. He's known as one of the Fuqahab Basra. So a faqih, Saleh, Siddiq, Tabi. Living in the time of Sahaba with the certification and approval of Sayyidina Ali radiallahu ta'ala anu. Making du'as that are not found in the Quran and Sunnah. Those du'as are being recorded and those du'as are being imitated and used. By who? By fellow Tabin and Tabai Tabin. That book has also been printed and it was translated a couple of years ago in English. If I remember correctly, I gave it as a gift to Iman once. If I haven't, then I owe Iman a gift. Iman did you give Oh. <laughs> also on record. So in the time of the Sahaba, Tabin, Tabai Tabin, basically, it was an informal thing that a person would decide who they would want to sit in their gathering. They would want to listen to their talks. And yes, certainly, in theory it's possible, certainly you would sit in more than one person's talks. But over time, it makes more sense to develop that one-to-one relationship. I gave you an Arabic grammatical basis for the one-to-one relationship in the verses of the Quran. I will now give you what we call akli dalil, an illogical argument for why that is beneficial. So to give you my own example, I've had the same eye doctor in Manhattan for, oh I'm getting old, for 30 years. 30 years. I started wearing glasses when I was in kindergarten. Taken out in kindergarten, saying, Would you look at me like professor? Allah ta'ala, professor, banadia. Right? I've had the same eye doctor. That fellow knows my eyes like Allah, uh, like you say in English, like he knows the back of his hand. Right? And you will notice that in medicine, medicine is also an essence healing. I mean, unfortunately, let's just forget what goes on in most of the world and even in Pakistan. But at its essence and its, in its ideal, in its idealized, essentialized form, what is medicine? What is the doctor-patient relationship? It's about healing. The doctor is a healer. And people will tell you that it is preferred that for that you should go to one healer. You should have one eye doctor. That is why at least in America, when you go to the doctor, they take out a form. And they want you to fill out your history. Then they make a little folder for you. And they keep updating that folder every time you come. And then over time, they get to know you. They get to know, or if you go to another type of doctor, and they get to know what type of antibiotics work on you, what are you resistant to, right? They also get to know you, that do you take your medicines regularly or not? They even know that, and they even find ways to work around that. Just like that, a sheikh will get to know you and know what type of nafs you have. What type of tricks has your nafs been successful in using on you? What are the wasawas of shaitan that have been successful on you? What are the ibadat that you're not doing? What are the sins that you fall into? They will get to know your spiritual side. They will never know anything else about you. Just like your doctor will get to know your physiological side, but doesn't get to know anything else about you. Now, just like that doctor, who that is a given. Whichever doctor understands you better physiologically, he will be better able to cure you. And I think all of you would realize it's a reasonable conclusion to make that that doctor who you go to regularly and repeatedly is going to know you better physiologically. Just like that, that sheikh, the ustaz of tazkiyah is called sheikh. The ustaz of Quran is called mufassir. 
The Ustad of Hadith is called Muhandid. The Ustad of Usul is called Faqih or Mujtahid. The Ustad of Fiqh and Sharia is called Mufti. The Ustad of Quran is called Qari or Mujawid. If he's Ustad of Tajweed, these are names. The Ustad of Tazkiyah has been called Shaykh. Tomorrow I'm going to be showing you from Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah the word Shaykh. So the Shaykh who knows the student better spiritually is going to be better able to give them Nasihah. Is going to be better able to do their Tazkiyah. And just like it was reasonable to assume that that doctor who I go to regularly and repeatedly will know me better physiologically, it is, re- it is reasonable to assume that that Shaykh Uman is in Rabata and Sohbat and Ittila in contact and informs and inquires and is in the company with it regularly and repeatedly will get to know me better spiritually. And that is the actual maqsad. And when I go to a doctor regularly, he's not the maqsad for me. I'm not going to him for 30 years because he's the maqsud. Being healed is the maqsud. Just like that, the shaykh is never the maqsud. Allah Ta'ala is the maqsud. The purified heart is a maqsud. The purification process is the maqsud. But a teacher is an efficient and productive way to do that. So it's a means. It's not an end. And tomorrow I'll also be sharing with you that over history some people have gone astray. Some people made the means an end in of itself. And they engaged in things that were false and corrupt. And so while we condemn what are the mistakes and errors that happen in history, we cannot change the Islamic teachings.